want you to stop. Stop and think back with me. When you think of home, what comes to mind? What do you hear? What do you see? What do you smell? Home is a thing that means something different to everyone. Where was home for you? Did you move a lot? Did you stay in one place? Or maybe you didn't have a place to call home. On today's show, the issue that has shaped voting, individual rights, and especially education in the United States, housing. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. When I think of home, a few memories come to mind. Riding our bikes to the park to catch crawdads, my pet frog Kermit's memorial service, and eating popsicles in the backyard with my brother and the neighborhood kids. Awkward walks to middle school. You remember that feeling of walking past the kids that were always smoking by the chain link fence? But The stability that my parents were able to create as hardworking public school teachers defined so much of my life and upbringing. And it's something I honestly took for granted. Today, we're talking about housing and its connection to education with Megan Gallagher, a researcher at the Urban Institute. But what is housing? Well, it's not quite as straightforward of an idea as you might think. In chapter 10 of Our Children Can't Wait, Megan describes the different components of the housing bundle or housing components, including housing affordability, quality, stability, and neighborhood conditions. Welcome, Megan. Thank you, Joe. If you could share your your role at the Urban Institute and even give us a sense of what is the Urban Institute? The Urban Institute is an organization that was founded in the late 60s in an effort to fight poverty Hmm. using data and information as a tool. And so this was really part of the war on poverty. Um, In fact, some of the original researchers had sort of been trained to do work for the Department of Defense and came over to Urban with their quantitative research skills uh, to tackle social challenges of the time. And since that time, we've really grown and changed. We think it's really important to elevate the debate um, and to make sure that data are really part of all policy discussions and that uh, they are made accessible uh, so that everybody can participate in those discussions. Megan, can you please tell us about your role at the Urban Institute? I'm a principal research associate at the Urban Institute in two of our policy centers. 
I sit in our Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center, which is really focused on communities, neighborhoods, cities, the building blocks of community. Mm-hmm. And I'm also based in our Education Policy Center. And that center is really focused on the nuts and bolts of the education system. And so my professional life really is at the intersection of those two policy areas that often don't don't collaborate and connect as much as they should. Let's build on that for our listeners, Megan. Give us a sense. So what is the relationship between housing conditions and education outcomes? One of the things that we have learned through research on child development and education is that there are a number of factors or dimensions of housing that really matter for Mm -hmm. kids' outcomes. And some of that work we've done at the Urban Institute, and some of it has been done by amazing um, academics and other uh, researchers across the country. We have learned that there are a number of dimensions that matter for kids' outcomes, All of them are outlined in the chapter that I wrote for Our Children Mm -hmm. Can't Wait. It's really hard for people who work in education to think about housing, and it's Hmm. really hard for people in housing to think about education. So it's a challenging place to be and a constant place for case making. Mm -hmm. Why it is so important for the housing sector to understand how important it is for outcomes like education, Mm -hmm. it actually can build the stakeholder base for housing Mm. when people understand that housing matters for other outcomes. I think for a really long time, housing was thought to be over there, right? Mm. It was not as critical or important for the well-being of children and families, I think because we didn't see people being evicted all the time, or we didn't see people being priced out of housing all the Mm -hmm. time. And Mm -hmm. so the relationship was a little bit more behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But today we see it so starkly that because there is so much of a housing crisis in our country where really we have not enough affordable housing for our population that um, we really see it uh, much more clearly that we have a big problem and that we need more affordable housing in order for people to thrive. Let's go back to you, Megan. How did you end up in this space? And even more specifically, mm-hmm. how did your upbringing shape your interests in these these two sectors, which oddly enough, don't talk to each other? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I grew up in a really big working class family with parents who expected us to go to college. Hmm. And my parents actually leveraged housing for my education in a couple of ways. We moved around a lot and we moved from Nebraska to Pennsylvania to West Virginia, back to Pennsylvania. And each time they 
looked for homes in neighborhoods with really high performing schools. Hmm. We weren't wealthy. And so that meant that we were house poor for much of my childhood. Hmm. Later in my life, they used home equity to pay Hmm. for four kids to go to college. Hmm. In my case, the location of the housing and the opportunity that we had to build wealth through housing benefited my family. On the flip side, the cost was high relative to our income. And that meant that we didn't have resources for things like dependable cars or brand name clothes. Mm -hmm. So as a child, of course, this wasn't particularly salient to me. (laughs) I was turned on to this policy intersection in graduate school when I took my first education and housing policy courses. So I think in, in my case, I really see the housing bundle as something that my parents actually, they made decisions based on what they wanted for us. Mm-hmm. And we ended up really benefiting from those decisions. I know it can be incredibly hard to, to weigh safety and cost and quality when you have very low income. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that we're putting too much of that on families today Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and their choices are not very good. Mm -hmm. I think we really need to think about how to take some of that burden off families. It sounds like your parents were able to use housing as the foundation for your educational journey and success at a time when it was possible to think that way or to move in that way. And what I hear you say, Megan, is that in today's growingly unequal playing field, it's just not possible to do that, even if you want to live in a community or to go to school in a community or to live in a certain neighborhood. It's an either or decision that folks are making. Yes, more and more so. I think that's exactly right. I don't think that the options available to children and families with low incomes Mm -hmm. look the same as they used to. Mm -hmm. And I think even when they are sacrificing maybe size of the unit Mm -hmm. or quality of unit, they're still not necessarily able to get the stability or the neighborhood amenities that they deserve. Coming up after the break, I ask, are we truly the land of the free? Unpacking the history of land ownership, housing, voting, and human rights. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator or a parent. Maybe you make policy at the state level or with the city council, or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. Email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. 
Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, and the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do so now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Megan is a terrific example of the ways that housing can impact learning. She's able to draw such a clear picture of how her parents were able to use housing as the foundation for her education. But the trouble is in today's growing unequal playing field, it's just not possible to do that. The economic conditions that parents are facing today make quality, affordable housing often unattainable. So I asked Megan, what role has land ownership played in our country in driving individual rights, even voting rights? So I've been thinking a lot about how the systems that I see my research as informing Mm -hmm. have had a history of being very destructive. So when I think about federal housing policy Mm. and what it has done to the ability to build wealth for many, many people, It makes me very conscious and very aware that we need to be incredibly careful and thoughtful about how we allocate resources. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking specifically about, about redlining policies and racial covenants. And I think, I'm guessing that Erica Frankenberg will talk a little bit about that because her work on segregation is so directly connected to this, but it really also has a legacy today in the wealth that African-Americans have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the wealth that many white Americans were able to build through their home ownership experience. Mm -hmm. And so when Mm -hmm. I think about the story of my family, it is a story of wealth building that Mm -hmm. we translated into education opportunity Mm. that may not have been available to black families at the same time. We also discuss redlining and what does that even mean? Redlining policies, they are the practices that were supported by the federal housing administration in I think from the 1920s to the 1940s, that showed how risky loans would be in different communities Mm -hmm. based on the demographics of those communities. And so it really discouraged investment in Black communities and communities of color at that time. Hmm. So without home buyers making investments in those communities, those communities didn't grow and black homeowners who may have wanted to buy properties in those communities didn't get the financial backing because those were considered to be risky loans to make. As we think about solutions for housing affordability, we jumped into a topic that is pretty controversial, housing subsidies. But as Megan points out, tons of families are missing out on a chance to receive 
housing support. The housing bundle is a combination of dimensions of housing that matter for kids. And those dimensions are housing quality, housing affordability, housing stability, neighborhood quality, and housing that builds wealth. So it's these different aspects of housing that can actually go in opposite directions from one another. Hmm. You might have a very stable but very low quality home. So there are benefits to having a stable home and costs to having a low quality home. Hmm. It's that combination of stability and quality that you're kind of as a parent weighing against one another. And I think we we talk about the housing bundle because all of those characteristics of housing matter for kids' outcomes. We can see that in the research, but we don't know as much about how they interact mm-hmm. and how the interaction of those characteristics results in, in different outcomes for kids. So is it better to be in a stable, stable, low quality home, or is it better to be in a unstable, higher quality home? So Mm -hmm. meaning, you know, maybe you're moving homes every year, but you're, you're moving from one high quality home to the next. I think what we don't know is we don't know enough about the relationship between aspects of the housing bundle and what is most important for kids' outcomes. If we take what we do know, translated to policy, and even examples of policies and strategies you think we need more of as a country, could you take us there, Megan? Absolutely. So we absolutely need more housing subsidies for students. At this point, only 21% of the households eligible for housing are getting it. That means that 79% of households that need a housing subsidy to support stable quality housing in a decent place are not getting it. So we need more housing subsidies in general. So you said of the eight out of 10 people who should be getting housing subsidies are not Why is that? It's an incredibly expensive thing Mm -hmm. to provide. Mm -hmm. As many people benefit from the increasing value of their own housing, that is exactly what leaves out people who don't own their own housing. It makes Mm -hmm. their costs higher too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we have is this increase in housing costs And the federal government cannot keep up with Mm. that. And wages are obviously not keeping up with that. Some of those housing subsidies should be used to support families to move to higher opportunity communities. So that means that the same subsidy that might be able to pay for housing support in one community may not be enough in another community. Mm. We actually should support families to live in the communities that they would like to live in, Mm -hmm. even if it costs more to live in a community with higher cost housing that often will have better amenities, more safety, Mm -hmm. and higher performing schools. Mm -hmm. The other piece of this is to really support 
people who are homeowners but have low incomes and to support the landlords that own properties that serve families with low incomes. We need to make sure that they're able to still offer affordable rents, Mm -hmm. but that they have the support they need for renovation and upkeep of the housing. So in addition, policy-wise, we really need to see more collaboration from the federal to the state to the local level between the housing sector and the education sector. Mm. Both of those sectors are incredibly complicated Mm -hmm. and There are good reasons why it's been difficult to make those connections. Their geographies are different. Their uh, players are different. Their language is different. Their incentives are different. But they actually have an awful lot of intersecting and aligning uh, aspects. And so there are some places in the country that have recognized that, and that needs to really grow, I think, Mm -hmm. for us to be able to see changes in schools on a broader scale. Don't worry. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. Places around the country are showing us that it is possible to tie housing and education together. At the local level, there is an amazing opportunity in public and assisted housing communities to support lots of kids in the same place at the same time. Hmm. So when I think about communities, you know, that might be sometimes called developments or or blocks or big public housing communities, there are a lot of children there. It's an amazing opportunity to bring enhanced, enriched resources right into those communities and make them actually more enriching than any other place Mm. you can think of and a lot of bang for your buck because Mm -hmm. you've got kids who are there who could really benefit from enrichment activities, like after Mm -hmm. school programming, for example, mentoring programs, um, computers, computer labs, different types of training. So that's really an opportunity at the local level to really support kids who are currently being served by the affordable housing system. What are examples of some places where where there's some pretty innovative things happening? Yeah. So Boulder Housing Partners does a really great job of supporting children who live in their housing, Mm -hmm. especially uh, young children and their parents, Mm -hmm. and then continuing to support many of them as they enter school. There are other housing authorities as well that really set aside housing subsidies for families with children who are school-aged. And I think these are really exciting and interesting innovations because they really center kids and say, Mm -hmm. let's make this housing a transformative place for families Mm -hmm. with kids. You talked about like New York City, D.C., what was such a complicated issue with so many actors for folks listening. Like, where should we be looking? Are, are there other examples that, that come to mind? These types of partnerships are, they are the product of people 
kind of looking outside of their silo and thinking about what are the real factors that are driving student turnover or absenteeism and how can we actually make sure that some of those systems that are outside of the school system are working the way that they should to actually support those kids so that they don't have to move and so that they can be in school every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so many of the places that are highlighted in the chapter have looked at their data uh, for their students and said, this right here seems to be an issue. Who can we work with? Mm. Who can help us with this safety issue or who can help us with this housing redevelopment issue where we're losing kids, you know, in this community and we don't know where they're going. There's a toolkit that I worked on a couple of years ago that I think is an amazing place. And uh, I mention it in the chapter, but it is a really great place for anybody who actually wants to take the step of looking at what their key issues are, thinking about whether there might be aspects of housing that really need to be addressed in their community, and then identifying the people and the players in their communities to work with more closely to address those housing problems. And what's the name of the of the, the toolkit, Megan? The toolkit is called Advancing Mobility from Poverty, a toolkit for housing and education partnerships. Hmm. That sounds pretty relevant, I'd say. (laughs) It's great. It's great. And so a lot of the work of finding each other, of identifying the things that they might work on together has been sort of codified in this toolkit. So I really recommend it uh, to anybody who wants to think about next steps for thinking Mm -hmm. about how to support their students on the housing front. Do the most powerful systems in our country for supporting young people and families is the education system and the housing system. And what I've heard from you is that if we can bring these worlds and systems together in much more strategic ways that we can impact millions of families in ways that other systems, institutions, for lack of better terms, just can't, can't do. The reach is just even hard, hard to wrap your mind around how much can be done. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. And I've also heard from your personal story, your mom and dad, how immediately they understood that relationship between education and, and housing and housing and education as, as you move moved across the country. But as you pointed out, there's absolutely an element of privilege in terms of them being able to navigate the system, regardless, it was still very hard to make it work. That's exactly right. And and it sounds like this it's harder to navigate the systems and affordability issues and to navigate where where we want to go given the structural barriers that exist today. It's a hard, harder thing for folks to wrap their mind around what your parents did when you're growing up compared to 2023. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I really think that we should be moving towards a world where housing is a right just Mm -hmm. like education is a right. Mm -hmm. Housing is not a right. And I think it's for that reason that we have the the level of, of housing crisis that we have today. It sounds like we've almost been normalized to say it's, it's for some, not, not for all housing is a right. And 
So for the last question for you, Megan, this is a hard question to answer, but what's the one thing you want listeners to understand from our conversation today and even from the chapter? If you care about children and their well-being and their potential to succeed in life, you have to care about housing policy. And you have to think about the homes that they grow up in and the potential for those homes to hold them back or propel them forward. I wouldn't consider myself a real housing policy wonk. But as you heard today, if you care about children, you have to care about housing policy. And as voters, we have to understand and invest in a place to call home for every young person. A home has the potential to propel students forward or hold them back. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.